Uh, if you have a Bible with you, would you like to turn to the book of Genesis? We're going to be uh, looking at passage from the end of Genesis chapter 45 and in, then into chapter 46. And uh, I think you'll be able to, to follow the scripture references we look at on the screen. But if you have a Bible, that's always good. You can turn to that and follow with me. So I'm going to read Genesis uh, 45 from verse 25. Okay, here we go. So they went up out of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he is ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. And Israel said, I'm convinced. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel set out with all that was his. And when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am. He replied, I am God, the God of your father. He said, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left Beersheba. And Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives in the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport them. They also took with them their livestock and the possessions they had acquired in Canaan, and Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt. He took with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons and his daughters and granddaughters, all his offspring. These are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his descendants, who went to Egypt. Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, the sons of Reuben, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shol, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershom, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Ur and Onan had died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez, Hezron, and Hamel. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Pua, uh, Yashub, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jarlil. These were the sons Leah bore to Jacob in Padan Aram, besides his daughter Dinah. These sons and daughters of his were 33 in all. The sons of Gad, Zephon, Hagi, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Erodi, Areli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, and Bariah. Their sister was Sarah. The sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel. These were the children born to Jacob by Zilpah, and whom Laban had given to his daughter Leah, 16 in all. The sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. In Egypt, Manasseh and Ephraim were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. The sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becca, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, uh, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. 
I'm still going. Let's do it. These were the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 in all. The son of Dan, Hushim. The sons of Naphtali, Jarzeel, Guni, Jezer, and Shilem. These were the sons born to Jacob by Bilhah, whom Laban had given to his daughter Rachel, seven in all. All those who went to Egypt with Jacob, those who were his direct descendants, not counting his son's wives, numbered 66 persons. With the two sons who'd been born to Joseph in Egypt, the members of Jacob's family which went to Egypt were 70 in all. Here's a... um, Oh, well, thank you very much. There are probably more challenging lists of names in the Bible, but I still kind of made a hash of that. We'll, We'll crack on. Okay, pub quiz question. Has anybody heard of Kinsakoroi? Ah. Well, I have. I can't remember where. I can't remember when I came across this. But Kinsakoroi is a form of almost uh, of uh, Japanese art. I don't know if we've got the, the image uh, to go with it. Uh, it's what to do in Japan especially, if you have a a piece of pottery that breaks. This is a a form of art where the broken pottery is remade into something that's more beautiful and even more valuable. You might think, well, when something's broken, that's it. Just brush it aside, get rid of it. Well, if you're um, an expert in kintsukuri, what you do is realize that with, with either gold or silver lacquer, Uh, you can uh, stick the parts of the broken pottery back together. Perhaps re-varnish it or or, or re-glaze it in some way, and it becomes something even more beautiful. You can Google that one uh, later. There's there's an image where where you can see the the, the gold lines now between pieces that have previously uh, been uh, broken. You know, Jesus says from the throne in Revelation, I'm making everything new. And ultimately, we're going to know that one day with a new heaven and a new earth. We've got a a God who who saw a broken creation and could have just pushed it aside and started something afresh. But he determines that though it had been broken by our sin, he would restore it. He would do a wonderful work of bringing more beauty and more value to his handiwork by carefully sticking it back together. We're going to know that one day in glory when we see uh, the universe put right. But here in the scripture and looking back to stories of old, we see God doing it in a family's life. We see God doing that with Joseph. We've seen God do that with the brothers. We're going to see it with Jacob as well. We see in Joseph's life a man who had been utterly broken by injustice, sold into slavery, in a prison, seemingly completely forgotten and alone. But God was at work. And years later, when he is all of a sudden promoted to... uh, to second in command underneath the Pharaoh to, to lead the nation through a time of great testing. Well, first of all, great abundance, and then testing when the famine comes. He's able to say on the event that one of his children is born, God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Maybe there would have been times when in prison Joseph would be thinking, well, why have you allowed me to suffer? Why have I had to go through this? What's the grand purpose here? 
And for years have passed, he's had to just rest in faith in God. I trust there is a God, and I trust that one day this is all going to make sense, even though before me right now it seems that I've been completely forgotten. We see a God using gold to stick his life back together. You've made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. We've seen it with, uh, with his brothers. For 22 years, they have hidden their dark and evil secrets. But their brother Joseph wasn't isolated and attacked by a wild animal, and they just happened upon his colorful coat that was all bloodied and messy, and they took it back to his father. That isn't what happened, and they knew it for 22 years. They had decided together. Well, first of all, they decided, let's kill him. And they just took a step back from that. No, let's put him in this pit. Let's let him die there. Oh, look, there's some Midianites. We can sell our own flesh and blood to slave traders. We can traffic our brother. We can forget about him. And then we won't have to deal with his dreams anymore. We won't have to deal... Um, we won't have to deal with him. And they first, so for 22 years, that's the secret they've buried. And over these past few months, perhaps, in the past few chapters that we've been looking at, God's slowly been probing at their guilty conscience, and they're coming to realize, oh no, this is happening. They're in a, a great problem. Uh, they're, they're, they're fearful for their lives when they visit Egypt and they look for food. And they think the Pharaoh seems to be kind in work. The Pharaoh's ruler, uh, the prince of the land, seems to be kind on so many occasions, but then seems to turn. And we're just, they're just worried and petrified. Oh, is this happening because what we did to our brother? And it's uncomfortable for them. And then this moment comes that Ben showed us last time around in chapter 45. When their guilty conscience has been probed and they think, oh, is God just punishing us? We're, this is disastrous. And, but then they realize the truth. That Joseph is still alive. Not only that, but that the brother they sold into slavery has forgiven them. And has forgiven them totally without reserve. And they're going back home with the amazingly good news, our brother's alive and we can move to Egypt, we'll be provided for, we can leave all our possessions behind because there are so many, so many good things that we're being given and provided for. It's a, an amazing example of, of God's work. God, this master craftsman, picking through the mess of their sinful choices in the past, but restoring them. So I'm going to use you. I'm going to use this family. I'm going to restore these relationships. I'm going to demonstrate my power. I'm going to demonstrate my grace. I could have chosen this family and thought they're too messy for me to deal with. I'm done with them. I'm starting afresh. I'll make a new piece of pottery. I'll make a new vessel. I'll work with a new people. It just got too awkward. Really too difficult. We see God patiently, over decades, uh, patiently working to, to have his hand on this family. He's determined, he's committed in his grace to still use them despite their sin. So they've just discovered that they are totally forgiven and they're on their way back to Canaan to speak to their father, Jacob. 
That's where we pick up the story today. They're, they're on their way back and they get back to Jacob. How is he going to respond to this amazing news? What's God doing in his life? How is God going to make him new? Uh, and we'll see that in a whole variety um, a whole variety of ways. But first of all, as you might imagine, when the brothers first uh, get home and they share the news that Joseph is alive, the text says that Jacob was stunned and he did not believe them. Some things can seem just too good to be true. He's, he's stunned, which might mean he was just frozen to the spot. Just not not seeming to respond at all. This is, this is too much uh, to take on board. And he says he did not believe him. That, that's interesting. When they were lying in chapter 37, and they were, he, they were bringing bad news, is this your son's coat? He believed straight away. Now that the sons have come back, and they're no longer lying, they're telling the truth, and it's good news, he can't believe it. That's an intriguing little observation about human nature. Can you identify with that? Sometimes it's easier to believe bad news. And we really need convincing if something's good. But if something's bad, we believe it straight away. And that, can, uh, that kind of attitude can infiltrate our relationship with God. We, we, uh, we're not quite sure of the good news, but if something is bad, it almost seems more certain. Do you find it easier to believe, uh, believe bad news? That's Jacob's initial uh, reaction. But it says that the spirit of their father revived. How come? Well, Jacob hears from, the, from his other sons, hears what Joseph has said. And you can look in chapter 45, all that Joseph has said. And there's this neat little point in the, in the middle of the speeches and, 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 and the reunion. And it says that the brothers talked with Joseph. We don't have the whole conversation. They, they really have come back together. It really was restored relationship. They talked. They talked about all that had happened, no doubt. And so the brothers have heard. It's Joseph. And Joseph has said... Don't worry, what, you know, in effect, what you meant for harm, God has meant for good. It's actually God who sent me here. And so they've heard all of that. They share those words with Jacob. And then Jacob sees all the carts roll up. Well, where did you get those? It doesn't mention the 20 or so donkeys that came loaded, laden with provisions and gifts and all sorts of clothing as well. So he's hearing the words and he's seeing the evidence. And he says, well, that's what helps him to see this. This is real. This is true. This is good news. And then he says, I'm, I'm convinced. There can be no other explanation. You couldn't have all of these carts and all of these resources and all of these gifts if what you're telling me weren't true. This is amazing. I'm, I'm convinced. Joseph is alive. That's wonderful. I'm going to see him again before I die. Here is uh, Jacob. Remember, he received a new name years ago. Here is Israel with new hope and new 
explanation. Actually, it's not. Maybe we aren't that surprised that he didn't believe it to start with. In the, when we, we know that Jesus' disciples, when they met with the risen Lord Jesus after his death and resurrection, they couldn't quite believe it to start with. Jesus was before them in a room pointing to the wounds on his body and saying, it's me, I'm not a ghost. And, and it's such good news they can't believe it to start with. It says he then opens, opens their minds so they can understand the scripture. That's how it's put at the end of, end of Luke's gospel. They, they're seeing, but they're also hearing the words. They're, they're hearing God's word. It's true. Jesus is alive again. He's no, he's no ghost. He's no fiction of our imagination. We haven't spontaneously all hallucinated at the same time. Our teacher, our saviour, our mentor, the hope of the whole world, whom we knew had died, is alive again. And they're, they're believers. They are totally convinced. They go around the world because they are totally convinced. They're not kind of selling a product that they don't believe in. They're utterly persuaded. We've seen him with our own eyes. We've, we've seen it explained in Scripture. We know that it's real, that Jesus is alive. That's the, that's the testimony that every believer carries. It's not running back home, I'm a really special person. I don't think the, the brothers were running back with that. They're just carriers of good news. And now they're carriers of forgiveness as well. That's what they have. Let, let's, let me tell you the good news, they say to their father. Because they've received such amazing an amazing transformation. One moment, they're just utterly guilt-ridden. And they think they're coming to the very end of as life as they know it. But suddenly their heads are lifted. They're receiving the most precious and amazing give, gift of total forgiveness. That's, that's what we have in Christ. That's what those uh, first disciples realized when they saw their Savior was alive again. That offering of his life is completely accepted. We can come in uh, in full relationship with, the, with our heavenly Father. It's wonderfully, uh, it's wonderfully good news. It's an encouragement to all those who might be just pondering the claims of the Christian faith. Uh, Rachel and I were uh, reminded recently of watching a, watching a video of a story of a, an American couple uh, called uh, Lee and Leslie Strobel. Uh, Lee Strobel has gone on to write a few books. Actually, they, as a couple, they wrote a book together talking about their story of coming to faith um, because Leslie came to faith in Jesus uh, long before her husband. Uh, that produced great tension, actually. Um, Lee Strobel was uh, an investigative journalist for the uh, Chicago Tribune at the very top of his game, always testing the evidence and claims of truth. And uh, when his wife became a believer, uh, he made her life difficult. And he set out to disprove the resurrection, desiring to undermine her faith. Uh, so that she would kind of come back to her senses, as it were. So as, as a journalist, with all that training and experience, he, he goes around the United States uh, interviewing and speaking with the, the foremost experts of every relevant field to kind of test out uh, the resurrection. He's, he's persuaded, he's convinced it's a load of nonsense, but he needs to try and persuade her it's a load of nonsense. That's what he does. 
And as he goes around the country, month after month, it slowly starts dawning on him, all his reasons for denying the resurrection of Jesus don't stack up to the evidence. He's gone to experts in the biblical manuscripts, he's gone to experts in biology, he's gone to experts in psychology, all over. And he comes to the conclusion, I've got nothing left to stand on. The resurrection of Jesus is factually reliable. And so he comes to faith. They write about it years uh, years later. Jacob, at this point, I am convinced my son Joseph is alive. I'll go and see him before I die. You know, this isn't just an encouragement to those testing out the claims of the Christian faith. This is a challenge to believers. You might have been a Christian for many years. How does this affect you? How does this challenge you? Well, it kind of demonstrates in Jacob that it's possible to be part of the family of God. It's possible to believe in God, yet still live with wrong ideas and wrong conclusions about God. Now, we might have great sympathy for Jacob. It's, it's easy to understand in some respects how he came to the conclusion that he did when he held the colorful, bloodied robe of his favorite son, Joseph. He reached what he thought was the obvious and only conclusion. Joseph's dead. And that was devastating. We can sympathize with him. We can say, well, of course he came to that conclusion. He was tricked. He was tricked by his other sons. Nevertheless, he was still wrong. He still came to the wrong conclusion, and as a result, he's been living for 22 years in misery and in self-pity. Most times Jacob speaks from chapter 37 onwards, it's talking about his death. I'm going to die. I'm going to die without seeing Joseph. If If Benjamin doesn't come back, if you don't bring Benjamin back, then you're going to bring my gray head down to the grave. It's been his, his preoccupation, as it were. Just, oh, this is the end. We saw it earlier on. I, I think it may be chapter, chapter 45, maybe, no, much earlier than that, chapter 42. When Jacob says, everything's against me. Do you remember us just touching on that as we went through the story? Jacob says, everything is against me. And we just kind of made a note then. Actually, Jacob, it's not, but you haven't come to realize that yet. Everything is not against you. And God is not against you. We might sympathize with how you managed to reach that conclusion. But it's not true. That's what he's, he's struck by. And sometimes as Christians, we can, we can live with wrong conclusions about God. We can think, for, for reasons of circumstance or temperament or whatever, everything's against me. We might think, God is punishing me. We might think, well, I know I'm part of the family, but God doesn't really love me. I can see that he loves everybody else. That's without question. I get that, but I don't quite get that he believes me. You think it's easier sometimes, dare I say again, to believe bad news that isn't true than to believe good news that is. 
And we have to bring those thoughts to the Scripture and bring them to the evidence of God's incredible love and a God who makes everything new and a God who's always working for our good. We've, we've seen that so many times when we've looked at Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. All things. Everything's against me. No, in all things, God's working for the good of those who love Him. In all encouraging things, but also in all challenging things as well. In all things, God is working for the good of those who love him. We could turn to Philippians 1 verse 6 and see that the God who began a good work in us, who began a good work in you, the moment you came to faith in Jesus as your saviour, the God who began a good work right then is carrying it on to completion. Oh, but you don't know. You don't know. It's like my life, I I, it was an accident, or it was deliberate sin, or it was what someone else did, but the, the, the vessel of my life got dropped, and it smashed to the ground, and it's in pieces. You, you don't know. That's not repaired. We can't go back in time and change that. No, we can't. But we do have a God using gold and silver to lacquer it back into something that's beautiful, is useful, and is valuable. That's, that's what God says. Oh, but my parents said this about me. You're useless, you're rubbish, you're this, you're that. What does God say? Oh, you don't see all my cracks. Can you believe that God can put gold into every vulnerability? Do you believe that God can put gold and silver in, in what's been painful? Do you believe that your life might be more glorious and a demonstration of God's glory? Not, not because He kind of ignores the pain and ignores the past, but because he redeems it and restores it. We've got a wonderful God. God is not punishing you. It says in Isaiah 53, verse 5, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Now your feelings might tell you all sorts. I think God might be punishing me. He might be doing something because he might. The scripture talks in Hebrews about God's discipline. But even that is from the love of a heavenly father who's not punishing, he's training. He wants us to be more like him. He wants us uh, to, to have a harvest of, of righteousness and to share in his holiness. And therefore, because of his utter, relentless commitment It will sometimes bring us into hardship. Why? He's fashioning us. He's working us. He's putting gold into us. Paul can write, we despaired even of life. But this happened so that we might not rely on ourselves, but rely on God who raises the dead. God's God's put gold into the cracks. I don't think he was lying. I don't think he was exaggerating. There are times in the apostle's life uh, when he was despairing of life. This is so hard. I've got a wonderful God. There's a wonderful message. But there's so, there's so much hardship. There's so much opposition. But this has happened that I might learn to rely on him. And he's being restored. A God, a God who's at work. If your feelings say, or your thoughts suggest, God doesn't love me, then turn to the pages of Scripture. 
turn to the good news. Turn to uh, another example. We could just go to, to Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Are we looking at the evidence? Are we hearing the words? Are we taking those to be true? It must have been a challenge. The news was wonderfully good, but for Jacob to suddenly transition, that must have been a bit of a challenge. Maybe even it felt easier to, for a moment, think, actually, no, no, I'm, I'm, life is miserable. We're in the middle of a famine, um, but you go on without me because I don't quite believe you. He could have rested there. He could have rested with the familiar. He could have rested with what he knew. But he came to that point of realizing, actually, for 22 years, I've been wrong. For 22 years, I've, I've not... My feelings don't determine what's true. That's quite an adjustment, isn't it? And maybe for that reason in God's economy, that's why he would grab our attention with lamentations, the scripture uh, that, that Ginny was reading out earlier on, because what God's doing here, what, that gold that's going back in to this, uh, uh, this work of art, as it were, is about receiving new hope. Jacob is revived because he has hope again. He has new hope. And then what were we hearing uh, this morning, if I can uh, find it again myself? Lamentations chapter 3, verse 21. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself... The Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. Do you, do you speak to yourself with Scripture? Do you address yourself? Sometimes the problem can be that we, all we do is listen to ourselves. We listen to the thoughts, we listen to the feelings that say, God's punishing you, he doesn't really love you, and so on and so forth. And we just listen. We listen to the bleak report, we listen to the bad news. And what the Lord would have us do and what Scripture would help us to do by the power of His Holy Spirit is say, I'm going to speak to myself. I'm going to start talking back. I'm going to tell myself the real evidence, the real truth and the good news. The Lord is my portion. I'm going to wait for Him. I'm going to trust in hope. Though it might seem that disaster is befalling me and everything around me is crumbling and I'm heading into a season of the complete unknown. This is beyond awkward and uncomfortable. I don't know how life's going to make sense right now, but what I know to be true is the Lord's great love means I'm not going to be consumed because His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Maybe you have tested the patience of God a thousand times. And a thousand times the Lord comes to you with His faithfulness and with His mercies that are new 
every morning. Don't keep testing his patience. Let's be learning the lessons of his faithfulness. Let's learn to adjust the way that we think. But don't think somehow that God's faithfulness can be overshadowed by past hurts and personal failings. God is bigger than what was happening in Jacob's life. So maybe this morning is about new hope being restored to the people of God and even those who haven't yet come into his wonderful good news. Maybe it's about receiving new hope again. We could go on and we could look at how the Lord just keeps blessing. He's going to take Jacob on a new journey. Jacob, you could understand, he's keen to get going. He's keen to make progress. He wants to get to Egypt and see his son. He's still, hope has been restored. Note that he's still saying, I, I want to see him before, you know, before I die. That's, that's been his kind of motto, as it were. He's just been talking about his death so much. Actually, it's a little detail further on in chapter 47. We learn that Jacob didn't just get to Egypt, see Joseph and die. He had 17 years in Egypt. Think about that just for a moment. Why is that significant? How old was Joseph when he went to Egypt? He was 17. Jacob had 17 years with Joseph when he was young. And now as God restores hope to this family, Jacob's going to have another 17 years with his son. You just sense again the, the, the goodness in God's symmetry. like wonderful goodness of God. Here he is, about to set out on that journey with everything, with all that was his. This is total commitment. This is, he's, he's in completely. He's totally convinced. He's not holding anything back. And it's an, if you like, that's a picture. We might, the moment that we decide to to put our faith in God and, his God and in God's Word, a whole new journey opens up. We're led into a different land. But out of faith and trust in God, it's safe to commit 100% to Him and hold nothing back from Him. Sometimes we can be reluctant to leave behind what might be familiar to us, even if it has been a bit miserable, because the new is totally unknown. Also for Jacob he had to overcome the hurdle that he knew that God had said to his dad Isaac years ago in a different famine don't go to Egypt. Do not go down to Egypt. That was God's words to Isaac. Jacob had grown up with that presumably and now he's got to cotton on to the fact that at this point God is saying go to Egypt. So notice what Jacob does does the first step on this new journey it looks like everything is is sorted everything's been thought of the carts the donkeys all the provisions he's got his whole family with him whilst they go back to see joseph it's obviously the will of god but what does he do he stops at beersheba kind of his family's hometown as it were this is where he grew up and he worships with sacrifice and you can imagine, perhaps, it's that mix of, of incredible gratitude. He's just so grateful for what God has done. 
that it's restoring worship in his life. There may be an element of repentance. Lord, I've been wrong. I came to the wrong conclusion. And now in humility, he's maybe seeking guidance as well. It all looks lined up, really. I guess I'm supposed to go to Egypt. I want to see my son, and you've provided for us there. Nevertheless, he worships first. He wants to engage with God. And then he receives from God, not just this new journey, but new promise. If he needed permission, God gives it. Go to Egypt. He's had promises before about uh, becoming a great nation. What he didn't know until that day is that they would become a great nation in Egypt. He's got his whole family with him. God, are you with me? God says, yes. let's, Let's go to Egypt together. As God brings this new journey with new with new promise. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I'll surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. I think Joseph went to Egypt knowing that he would die in Egypt, but that God would bring him and Israel would bring him back to the land that was always promised. God's massive promises, God's massive purposes being realized afresh by an old man putting God first. For 22 years, he's been wallowing. And for 22 years, since chapter 37, there's no record of him encountering God particularly. Jacob has encountered God in some wonderful ways on many occasions. Stairway to heaven. Surely God was in this place, wrestling with God all night, having a limp as a result for the rest of his life, but knowing that he'd received a blessing. God's changed his name. He said, you're not deceiver. You're not Jacob anymore. I'm, making, I'm calling you Israel. He's, he's received and he's met with God. But that's not really been a feature of life for 22 years. But it's all being restored. It's all being worked out by God who says, I am with you. My presence will go with you. Here, have new promise. And what we see being, what we see being restored is not just an individual. It's actually the whole community. The, the, the family of God have looked pretty dysfunctional and messy. The hope of the world in this family looks a bit Ironic, really. Sometimes that can be the case. Sometimes in, in history, the church might not look like the most attractive group. Sometimes we, in our own personal lives, don't, are not this glowing advert for the Christian faith. Oh, I've seen God because you're so amazing. I want to be like you. Tell me more about your faith. Maybe sometimes you've had that. <laughs> and... Maybe in the future that will happen. But we see God patiently renewing a whole community. They were, they've been broken. They're a pot that's been fractured with all sorts of jealousy and hatred and discord and favoritism and suffering and pain. They've kind of, for a while, they've gone their own separate ways. Now we see God's family being united, being brought back together, all living in the fruit of forgiveness. You know, if you're like Joseph, pondering, oh, 
oh, can I forgive somebody? Can I Look at all the people who've benefited from Joseph forgiving his brothers. That's why the list of 70 names is worth reading out. Here's all the, this isn't just about Joseph. This isn't just about Jacob. This is about a people being united again in the promises and the purposes of God, demonstrating this kind of gold handicraft, even in their brokenness, this is a special people. This is a beautiful people. What, what a wonderful story. Look what God has done. Not we're special, but look what God has done when we choose to forgive. Look what God has done when we choose to put him first. Look what God does when a whole people give total commitment to their Lord. This is a once fractured people being brought back together. The tragedy in so many Christians' lives is that having been hurt once upon a time in the past, and I don't belittle that at all, the solution is just take, take a step back. Church is good, but don't, don't get too involved. Put on the face, put on a bit of a front, get through it, go and do your life. Because that fruitfulness is God's purposes out there, and that, that is true. But you even notice with Joseph, he would not have been part of the purposes of God if he had not forgiven his family. So we might praise him for, for that grace and mercy that he demonstrated. That is spiritually logical. Am I part of this family or am I not? If I am, I'm going to forgive and I'm going to be a part of it and I'm going to provide for them and I'm going to bless them even where they've hurt me. Let's not be Christians checking out of community, thinking I'm just going to do my own thing, my own way, in my own time, and once a week smile to some people I can't quite remember the names of. Believe God for profound purposes being a church together, on a new journey, with new hope, with new promises, and lots of fruit thrown in. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand. I'm going to pray and we're going to worship God.